Well, I've been in some dark places. I was growing up, we went on a family vacation to Chattanooga, went to Lookout Mountain, and we went to Ruby Falls. And any time we're close to caverns, my dad made sure we went to the caverns. He loves caverns for some reason. And we went down to the caverns, and there where the falls were coming down. i never forget, we were down there, way under the earth, and they turned the lights off. And it was literally so black, you could not see your hand in front of your face. It was dark, the darkest place I've ever been. Well, not only have I been to places of physical darkness, I've been to some places of spiritual darkness as well. And as I was thinking through this sermon, a couple of places came to mind. Years ago, I had the opportunity to go out west and teach a Bible study in the dead of winter at this little church in a small town, which was in the vicinity of Salt Lake City. You know, the Salt Lake City is the center of uh, the Mormon, uh, uh, Mormon religion, Mormon cult. And I was teaching there in this town, which was very, very close to Salt Lake uh, City. And the town was about 95% Mormon. And just a handful of people that were not Mormon. Everywhere you went, we went around visiting folks. We went to the fire station, the post office. Everywhere you went, everyone was Mormon. And they knew who was there who was not Mormon. And it was a a very eerie feeling. You might say, well, wait, it's kind of harsh to call Mormonism a cult. Well, can I just say this very quickly before I move on, kind of parenthetically? Any group that says that Jesus Christ is a created being rather than the eternal creator is a cult. And any group that says that Jesus Christ is spirit brothers with Lucifer is a cult. And I was there close to the center of this cult, and and I could feel the, the spiritual darkness in that area. I could feel the oppression. I could sense the spiritual warfare in that place. And it was, a, I told Claire, it was the loneliest week of my life. She wasn't with me. I wish she would have been. It was the loneliest week of my life. I could not wait to get home to her. It was, it was dark, spiritually dark. I remember when I was in Southeast Asia at one point, and we went to a Buddhist pagoda. We were walking up some steps to get to the top of that pagoda, and you'd look over on the side, and you would see people fashioning uh, statues with their hands. And then in that section, when they would finish fashioning the statue, they'd take it to the top, put it in a little place, and they would go and worship that statue. Worship the work of their hands. It was idolatry. And I remember just walking around seeing the, the lostness in that area and how the people were deceived, and I felt the, the, the darkness in that area. I've been to some dark places. Well, we're going to see this morning a message from Jesus to a church that was in a dark place. The church was in a city called Pergamum. And we've got much to learn from this message. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing our summer sermon series where we're just looking at the message of Jesus to the seven churches scattered throughout first century Asia Minor. Revelation chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 12. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. The Bible says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, 
the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, says this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful that we can come to you and call you Father. We're so grateful for the shed blood of Christ, which washes away our sins, and the righteousness of Christ, which which robes us this morning, so we can come before your presence and know that we will be heard. And we ask you, Lord, in these moments to speak to us in a mighty way. Lord, by your Spirit, apply your word to our hearts that our lives may change. Lord, help us to understand what it means to be light in the midst of darkness. Lord, I ask you to establish my steps in your word today. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This message begins in verse 12 where Jesus says to the angel, which I believe means the pastor, the messenger of the church in Pergamum. Uh, He's writing this message to this church in that city. Now Pergamum was about 55 miles north of Smyrna. And we talked about last week how Smyrna was about 40 miles north of Ephesus. And Pergamum was the capital of Asia Minor. It was a city of much cultural, educational, medicinal, political, and religious influence. It had multiple pagan shrines and temples. There were three temples alone dedicated to emperor worship because the emperor in the Roman Empire in the first century was considered a god. There were temples to Dionysius, uh, Athena, Demeter, and Zeus. There was pagan worship done in very immoral ways everywhere you looked. You might say that Pergamum was a very dark place. And yet, in the midst of this idolatry in the midst of this demonic influence there's a handful of believers there's a church there and jesus has a message for this church in this city and we learn from this message how we are to think through living in the midst of darkness how we're to how we're to process what it means to live in the midst of of spiritual darkness. And and we're going to learn from this message that there are three things that we need to be aware of when we find ourselves surrounded by darkness. First of all, we need to be aware of Satan's strategies. Satan's strategies. We're going to see Satan's strategies unveiled in this text, at least three of them in this message. First of all, we're going to see the strategy of intimidation. Intimidation. Look what the Bible says there in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, 
who was killed among you, listen, where Satan dwells. We see here that Jesus recognizes the context of this church. He understands the environment in which they were living. They were surrounded by ungodly people and saturated by ungodly messages. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know the context of your ministry. I know what's going on all around you. And look at how he describes this city. He describes it as a place where the throne of Satan is. That's a, that's a pretty strong, uh, vivid description. What does he mean by this throne of Satan? Well, there are different views on this. Uh, one scholar, Robert North, writes that in, in the city of Pergamum, on a mountain area, there was a 40-foot-high monument to Zeus. It was called the Altar of Zeus. And North writes, this lofty pagan shrine could have been the, the Satan's throne of Revelation 2.13, either because it was of imposing height or because it symbolized Rome's power administered at Pergamum. We don't know if that's what Jesus intends here, if he's saying that that throne to Zeus symbolizes that this is a seat of Satan's power but we know when he says that Satan's throne is in Pergamum, he's saying that Satan has sway in that city. That Satan is oppressing that city. Satan has power in that city. You're living in the place where Satan's throne is located. Pretty strong language. And then he says, at the end of verse 13, you're there where Satan dwells. Satan is there in that city. Perhaps it was a combination of emperor worship with other pagan gods that caused Jesus to call this city, the place where Satan dwells, but there's no question, this city was a stronghold of Satan. It was a dark, dark city. And this church in Pergamum found themselves, listen, surrounded by pagan idolatry and all manner of evil. I think John Stott uh, captures this well when he writes, he, Jesus, is aware that his people in Pergamum are surrounded by non-Christian society and are exposed on all sides to the pressure of the world's standards and values. Their little boat is tossed about by the winds and waves of strange doctrines. Their fortress is bombarded by the gunfire of alien cults. They feel besieged and beleaguered. That's what the church in Pergamum was experiencing. And can I tell you this? The longer I live in this culture, the more I feel like the church in Pergamum. Have you felt bombarded lately by growing secularism in our culture? Have you felt that your worldview, your faith in Christ is under attack in an ever-increasing way? If you feel that way, it's because that's what's happening. Things are changing rapidly in our nation. I mean, rapidly. And, and as things continue to go in that direction, and, and, and darkness continues to infiltrate our culture, we're going to have more and more in common with the church in Pergamum. We're going to experience what they experience living in a place that is spiritually dark. And, and that's what Jesus is saying. I know where you dwell. You are being bombarded by non-Christian, unchristian messages, by unchristian worldviews, by the, the assault of a secular culture. And guess what? Satan loves to use that that bombardment, as a way to intimidate God's people into silence. He, he loves it when God's people feel like they've lost the day. He loves it when God's people feel like they can't make a difference, they can't make an impact, things have gone too far, that there's no way things can turn around. He loves it when the church of Jesus Christ is intimidated into silence. 
where they just feel like it, there's too much opposition out there. People were shouted down when we speak of Jesus. We're, we're marginalized. No way we can have an impact. And Jesus is saying, I know where you, you're being intimidated. You are being bombarded by the forces of hell. And it's a, a tactic that Satan loves to use. He loves to intimidate Christ's followers into silence. This is what's happening in Pergamos. what's happening in our culture today. But not only did Satan use intimidation, Satan used persecution. Look what it says in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. My witness, my faithful one, watch this, who was killed among you. So Antipas is described as one who was a witness of Christ. He spoke forth things concerning Christ, and because of his proclamation of Christ, Antipas was killed. He was martyred for his faith. Now we talked a lot about persecution last week, and we dealt with the church in Smyrna. But again, Satan loves to use persecution to intimidate, to silence the church. To, to stop us from, from sharing the good news, the, the message that our, our society and our culture desperately needs to hear. So Satan attempted to silence the church's witness through the, the means of persecution. And if things don't change, we're heading towards persecution in our land as our religious liberty and our culture is being assaulted, we can expect more and more consequences for naming the name of Christ and identifying with a Bible-believing church. That, that's coming in our culture. And, and Satan loves to intimidate through persecution. But there's a third strategy of Satan that is mentioned here, and it's the strategy of infiltration. He loves to attack the church outwardly through intimidation and persecution, but then he loves to attack the church from the inside out using infiltration. Look what happens in verse 14. The Bible says, But I have a few things against you. He, he commends them that they had not denied the faith, but he criticizes them because they had allowed the faith to be distorted through false teachers. Look what he says. He says, I have a few things against you because... You have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what's going on here? What is this false teaching that had infiltrated the church in Pergamon? Well, he mentions Balaam and Balak which is a reference to a story that took place in the Old Testament book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, there's this Moabite king named Balak, who was an enemy of the Israelites, God's people. And Balak wanted to destroy the Israelites, and so he hired a prophet named Balaam to curse the Israelites. But here's the problem. Every time Balaam opened up his mouth to curse, words of blessing came out. God supernaturally forced Balaam to pronounce blessing over Israel instead of curses. And so Balaam says to Balak, to the king, listen, this isn't going to work. I'm trying to curse him. Uh, the Lord won't let me to do that. And so cursing's not going to work. So they went to plan B. And it says there in verse 14 that Balak taught Balaam how to, uh, Balaam taught Balak how to do this. What did Balaam teach Balak concerning destroying the Israelites? Well, Balaam taught Balak that the way to destroy God's people was to tempt them to compromise. 
If you look over in Numbers chapter 25, the Bible says that Israel remained at Shittim, and the people began to play the harlot, listen, with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people, the daughters of Moab, invited the Israelites to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. So Balaam taught Balak this. If we can't curse them, let's invite them to come and participate in some immorality with the women and worship the God of Baal. And that's exactly what happened. The, the people of Israel were seduced to walk away from their God, walk away from their wives even, and participate in immoral things with the women of Moab, even to the point they were bowing down before the false God of Baal. Wow. That's what was happening. And it says there that Balaam taught Balak how to do it. He's speaking here of a message of compromise. Numbers 25.9 records that 24,000 Israelites died because God sent a plague of judgment against them because of their compromise. And so that gives us some insight into the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But look what it says there in verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way, notice that phrase, the same way, hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In other words, the teaching of the Nicolaitans was related to the teaching of Balaam. It's about compromise. It's about seducing them away from their God to do immoral things and worship a false God. That's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says that teaching is in your church. You've allowed it in your church. Now, when we studied the church in Ephesus, we, we studied the Nicolaitans. And, and there's not a lot of information about the Nicolaitans, but there are two predominant views concerning who the Nicolaitans were. We know they were false teachers, but what was their origin? Origin. Some people think the Nicolaitans uh, were related to the teaching of Balaam because if you look at the Greek root for the word Nicolaitan and the Hebrew word for the, the, the name Balaam, it both means to overcome or to conquer. And so there's, there's a view there that they're just called followers of Balaam, basically what it means. They were teaching the same things that Balaam was teaching. Another view is that the Nicolaitans had followed a rogue deacon named Nicholas. Now, that's not in the Bible, but that's a, a view that Nicholas had gone in the wrong direction teaching false things, and his followers were called Nicolaitans, followers of Nicholas. But whatever the case is, these Nicolaitans were false teachers that were causing the church to compromise truth. Causing the church to walk away from faithfulness to the Lord. And Jesus criticized them for allowing false doctrine to enter the church that was causing people to compromise and be unfaithful to God. And so Satan is very adept at infiltration. He loves to, to place false teachers in a church body to teach false things to lead people away from the truth. He's very good at it. He's been doing it for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So we always need to be on guard against that, that threat of infiltration. And so we see here laid out in this text Satan's strategies. Intimidation, persecution, infiltration. Attacks from the outside, attacks from the inside. Now if you think about military, if you think about the different conflicts in our world between different nations, you know that, that militaries employ spies, right? And the purpose of a spy basically is to ascertain what the enemy's doing. 
to know what their strategies are so you know how to fight them, so you know how to defeat them, so you know how to have victory. Well, half of the battle in our war against the enemy, in our war against Satan, is to know what he's up to. And this is what he's up to. He intimidates, he persecutes, he infiltrates, all designed to destroy the church. All designed to cause us to walk away from faithfulness to Christ into silence and oblivion and no impact in the culture. That's what Satan's doing. And so we need to be aware of his strategies. But secondly, we need to be aware, when surrounded by darkness, of the battle plan for the church. How are we to proceed when we find ourselves bombarded by the enemy? When we feel ourselves surrounded by secularism, how are we to proceed as a church? What are we supposed to do? Well, there's a battle plan in this text. First of all, the first part of this plan is don't back down. Don't back down. Look what the Bible says in verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith. That phrase, hold fast my name, is a present tense verb in the original language, which basically means this was an ongoing thing. They had held fast in the past, and they were continuing to hold fast to their faith in Christ. They did not back down from their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, here's the first part of our battle plan. We want to stand against the assaults of the kingdom of darkness. We've got to get to this place where we say, we will not compromise, we will not back down. Now listen to me. You've got to make that decision now. Because if you don't make that decision now, when the heat is turned up and the rubber meets the road, you will cave. You've got to make the decision on the front end, no matter what comes, I will not back down from what I know to be true. Jesus has saved me. He's forgiven me my sins. He's given me the hope and promise of heaven. He's given me his word to live by, truth with no mixture of error. I will hold on to Christ. I will stand on the word of God. I will cling to the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. I will not back down. We've got to make the decision now. No matter what our culture throws our direction, we've got to say we will stay faithful to the great doctrines of the Bible. We will stay faithful to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think about Peter. You remember over in John chapter 6, there was a great multitude of people that had gathered around Jesus, and Jesus began to teach some really hard things. The Bible says the crowd left. And the only ones remaining were his disciples. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he says, said, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Peter said, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's a great word for us today. If we're going to back away from the faith, where are we going to go? Who else can save our souls and change our life and give us real hope and real meaning and real fulfillment and real joy and real purpose in life? No one but Christ can do that. So if you walk away from Jesus, where are you going to go? Don't back down. Stay true to your Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ and make that decision now so you won't have to scramble during the time of testing. Secondly, we think about the battle plan for the church when we're surrounded by darkness. We need to be consistent, courageous witnesses for Christ. Look what Jesus says in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. And look how he describes Antipas. My witness, and then what? My faithful one. And Antipas was killed for proclaiming Christ. But notice the connection here. In one breath he calls him my witness, in the next breath he calls him my faithful one. In other words, when you share your faith in Christ, when you bear witness to Christ, Jesus sees you as faithful. And the flip side is also true. If you never open up your mouth and share Christ, we are seen as unfaithful. Antipas is called the faithful one because he bore testimony to Christ. Even in the face of of his death and his persecution, he told folks about Jesus. And Jesus commends Antipas here in this verse. If we're going to impact our culture, which is rapidly going in the wrong direction, if the trajectory of our nation is going to change, It's going to be because God's people open up their mouths and talk about a crucified, risen Savior. It will not happen apart from that. Because the only way we change our nation is to change our nation one person at a time. And you change someone by introducing them to the one that can change them. Jesus Christ. Now, there's a statement that people love to quote. You see it on T-shirts, on bumper stickers. I've heard it a lot through the years. It's a statement that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And it's really a misleading statement. It goes something like this. Preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. Now, that statement means, okay, I'm going to live my faith. I'm going to live for Jesus. And people want to see my life. And that's preaching the gospel. Listen to me. We are called to live a holy life for the glory of Christ, but that's not evangelism. That's not preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel is actually opening up your mouth and talking about Jesus, sharing what he's done for you and what he can do for them. Because the Bible says in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, right? So just living the life with no verbal witness is not evangelism. That's not preaching the gospel at at all. We're called to be like Antipas. Actually open up our mouths and bear witness to Christ. No one's ever come up to me and said, Wade, I've been watching you and how you live your life. I'm saved now. Just by watching your life. Don't work like that. Now, could someone come to you and say, you know what, I see a difference in your life. I I want what you have. Absolutely. But at that point, you have to tell them how to get it, right? You have to say, you know what made me like, you you know what, why my life is the way it is? Jesus' grace in my life. Jesus has saved me. Jesus has changed me. And he can change you too. At some point, you've got to open up your mouth and give a verbal witness. But Satan in our culture has caused the church to cower into a, a, a corner of silence and obscurity. And we wonder why we're losing our nation. The battle plan for the church is to not back down and also to be consistent, courageous, 
witnesses for Christ. And then third, to hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the truth. Look what Jesus says in verse 16. As he, as he mentions the false teaching of the Nicolaitans, which was similar to the teaching of Balaam, he says in verse 16, therefore repent. That means stop and turn. So you should not allow false teachers in your church. Stop doing that. Turn towards truth. Cling to the word. Don't let false teachers infiltrate and have their way. And I love what he says here. Or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, Jesus is saying, either you deal with them or I will. Either you deal with the false teachers or I will come against your church in judgment with the, with the sword of my mouth, which I believe is the word of God. So Jesus here is saying, deal with the false teachers. Turn from that. Don't allow them. And hold on, hold fast to the truth. Let the truth be the foundation for what you believe and, and how you practice your Christianity. Let the Word be the foundation for all that you believe and all that you do. Hold fast to truth. Don't let false teachers win the day. That's what he's saying here. So if we're going to stand against the, the coming wave of darkness, we've got to make a decision that we won't back down. And we've got to be consistent, courageous witnesses for Christ. We've got to hold fast to the truth. Now, I'm not talking about being obnoxious here. I'm not talking about being a jerk. As a matter of fact, over in 1 Peter 3.15, when, when the Bible says we're to give reason for the hope within us, it says do it with gentleness and reverence. Share Christ with gentleness. Love folks. Let them know you care about them. But you've got to open up your mouth and speak of Jesus. You've got to hold on to the truth and hold fast to the faith. Don't back down. That's the battle plan for the church. If we'll do this, Instead of the darkness backing us into a corner, the light of Christ will push back the darkness. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Amen? When I was in this town out west, sharing this Bible study in this predominantly 95% Mormon town, I was teaching one day from First and Second Timothy, and I was talking about the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is divine second person of the Godhead, eternal. And as I was sharing this, a man stood up, and he said, Jesus was not God. Now, I missed the course in seminary about how to deal with that. I mean, he was angry, red face, pointing his finger, stopped the service. I looked at the pastor, the pastor went, like, I don't know what to do. And I'll be honest with you, it was an intimidating situation. It really was. So I began to just kind of walk through some different verses that spoke of the deity of Christ and why it matters that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine and how that, that matters in terms of his sacrificial atonement on the cross. If he were not fully God and fully man, he could not be our Savior. He could not be our substitute. And I, I kind of walked through all that and, 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 and shared that with him. And, and after a while, he, he argued back and forth with me for, for some time. But after a while, he kind of started calming down. And, and later on that week, he invited me and the pastor over to his house for dinner and we got to be friends and had some good open doors of conversation but i'm telling you that was an intimidating moment someone to stand up point their finger and yell at you and and i'm not trying to say i was some hero in that moment I, it was i mean it was intimidating but for the grace of god i would have said well let's just move on to something else but you know what if i would have moved on to something else then that that small little church in that Mormon town, could have been left without a clear witness to Christ. And so by God's grace, I, I walked through it and, and lifted up 
Jesus as fully God and fully man, crucified and risen from the dead. I, I was able to do that in that moment. But think of the consequences for not speaking that truth in that moment. People, listen, people's souls were in the balance. And, and as we look at our culture, it's not just some kind of, you know, cultural warfare. People's souls are in the balance. And if we back down, people are not hearing the good news of Jesus. And so we see here the battle plan for the church. But third and last, we see the rewards for victory. It gets really interesting here. We've seen the strategies of Satan, the battle plan for the church. But here are the rewards for, for the church, for the believers that, that hold on to the faith, that stay faithful in following Christ. There are some rewards for victory. And, and there are three of them mentioned in this passage. Look what it says there in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... He uses this phrase when he's speaking to all the churches in Revelation. The word overcomes comes from the, the Greek word nikon, which is where we get the word Nike from. It means to conquer, to be victorious. He says, to him who overcomes. Question, who are the ones who overcome? Listen to me. True followers of Christ. Those that are truly regenerate, those that are truly born again, those that are truly saved, will prove their faith in Christ by staying faithful to the end. And if someone says they have faith in Christ, but they fall away, their faith in Christ was not the real thing. They were never truly saved, even though they said they were. So those that make it to the finish line, faithfully following Christ, are those that were truly regenerate, those that were truly redeemed, those that were truly born again. He says, if you stay faithful to Christ, proving your salvation in Christ, you will get some rewards in heaven. When you make it to the finish line, what are the rewards? The first one is hidden manna. Hidden manna. Look what it says in verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, what in the world is that referring to? Well, immediately we think about the book of Exodus. The nation of Israel was wandering through the wilderness. They didn't have any food. They murmured and cried out to God. So God graciously sent them food from heaven called manna. They wake up in the morning, come out of their tent, and there were these small wafer-like things out there, honey-flavored wafers there for them to pick up. I had a pastor growing up that said these were like ancient honey buns. I don't know if that's the case or not, probably healthier than that. But they would pick up these wafers, and, and, and they would collect them for what they needed for that day, and they had food to eat. It kept them alive in the wilderness. It, it sustained them through the wilderness. And so I believe... This hidden manna speaks of eternal sustenance. That when we get to heaven, Christ will perfectly meet all of our needs forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Whatever we need in heaven, Christ will be there to give it to us. Eternal sustenance. It speaks of our eternal life in Christ. And he said, when you make it to the finish line, you're going to experience hidden manna. You're going to get manna from me for all of eternity to sustain you in my presence. Hidden manna. Secondly, there's a white stone mentioned. Look in verse 17. To him who overcomes, to, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. Now, what is the deal with this white stone? Well, there's some interesting possibilities. In the first century, people would use small stones or pebbles 
as admission tokens for public assemblies or festivities, like a ticket to get into an event. And in the first century, when someone perhaps won a, an athletic contest, the reward would be a stone that would give them access to anything they wanted to attend in the city, sort of like a key to the city. You ever seen a mayor of some town or city uh, present a key to the city to some dignitary, as if to say, all that we have is yours. That's the idea of this white stone. If you had this stone, if you won a, a victory, you were given the stone, and all that the city had was yours. You had access to anything you wanted to go to. So perhaps what is being discussed here is, is admission into heaven. I believe this speaks of admission into heaven. That those who are redeemed by Christ, when we make it to the finish line, we'll get a white stone which speaks of our admission into heaven itself. That that new city, that new Jerusalem. Wouldn't it be cool when Christ puts a white stone in your hand? There's another interesting possibility here, and I think they're related to admission into heaven. In ancient courtrooms, jurors would often vote for someone's acquittal or conviction. And to vote for an acquittal, they would vote with a white stone. To vote for conviction, they would vote for with another stone. So maybe the white stone here speaks of our justification before the Lord. That, that in Christ, we have been declared not guilty. We've been forgiven of our sins in a legal sense. And, and this white stone speaks of our, our right legal standing before a holy God because of the death of Christ on our behalf. I don't know, but either, either option speaks of admission into heaven because of jesus because of his grace because of his love because of his salvation we get to go to heaven and jesus is saying if you'll be faithful you will experience heaven a white stone access into my presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever but there's one final thing i want you to see there's hidden manna there's a white stone but then there's a new name mentioned look what it says in verse 17 to him who overcomes I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, what is this new name? There, there are two options, basically. Scholars debate this. Some believe this new name refers to a new name that Jesus will give us when we get to heaven. So we get to heaven, and Jesus says, you're no longer Wade. You are now whatever. New name. All right? Maybe. Maybe. But I believe the context text points to something differently i believe the new name is a new name that jesus reveals to us concerning himself i believe it's talking about the name of jesus a new name that he shares with us as his followers so wait why do you believe that well look over in chapter three chapter three immediate context still talking to the churches in asia minor chapter three verse 12 Jesus says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So just, just in the next chapter, Jesus mentions his new name. So I believe the new name in this passage to Pergamum speaks of the new name that Jesus will reveal to us. It's his new name. This speaks of intimacy with Christ. Intimacy with Christ. Paul said 
in Philippians 3, the greatest thrill of my life is knowing Christ. Everything else I count as rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For Paul, it was the ultimate thrill have a personal relationship with Jesus. Listen to me. And in, in Christ, when we embrace him as Lord and Savior, we get the privilege of knowing him in this life, right? But when we step into eternity, the knowledge of Christ doesn't cease. He continues to reveal to us new and wonderful things about his character and his nature. Things like a brand new name. And through all of eternity, we will experience the intimacy of walking with Christ. And learning more and more wonderful things about Christ and knowing him in a fuller, more meaningful way. And Jesus says, if you'll overcome, you'll get to learn my new name. That's a reward for staying faithful to Christ. I like what John Stott writes when speaking of heaven. He says, it will be to receive such a manifestation of Christ as shall completely satisfy both heart and mind. You say, wait, what's heaven going to be like? You know, we have the broad brush strokes in Scripture, but there's not a lot of information about heaven. What's heaven going to be like? All I know is it will completely satisfy your heart and your mind. Unfettered joy in the presence of your God. That's what heaven will be like. He writes, those who hold fast Christ's name shall receive a deeper revelation of it, a new name. That's what's coming for those who are truly his. And those who are truly his will prove it by staying faithful to the finish line. That's what he means here in this passage. So we have a lot in common with the church at Pergamum. There is an encroaching darkness in our land, in our society. And we've got to decide, are we going to hold fast? Are we going to stand strong? Are we going to open our mouth and talk about Jesus? Or are we going to be backed into a corner of obscurity and silence? That's the decision we all have to make. But I pray we will all choose to follow Christ boldly, courageously, consistently, for the glory of God.